The dawn of civilization. Primitive. Dangerous. Exciting. The handwriting is on the wall. If the human race is ever going to amount to anything, it needs... The most civilized caveman I have ever seen. Oh. <laughs> Mate, the like. last few podcasts were recorded on Zoom. I don't think we talk at all. And we also had one of my favorite ones that I did in yeah. before. Um, the guy, who, one of the guys in the US, his mm. kid came in and was like, Dad, Dad, let me tell you about the Octonauts. And so we had like this good segment where this guy's kid just came in and was telling him how great the Octonauts were. It was fantastic. That's awesome. I was a big fan of it. Um, <laughs> But this is sounding pretty good. Yeah. Um, and the sounds are just sounding pretty good. as the Cave Dweller Music Podcast. Good afternoon, good evening, or however what time it is. To you, the troglodyte listener, the cretin Cro-Magnon. Do you have any other, like, caveman puns or caveman alliterations we can throw in? Creature. <laughs> Creature, of course. <laughs> uh, ooga booga, man. Knuckle-dragging Neanderthal. Yeah. Aren't you fucking idiot? <laughs> 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 you know, they listen to them, they want to know what they're in for. It's a Cave Dweller Music Podcast, Matt here, um, and you know, you might be sitting there going, these accents, these accents, man, they're not the usual American one and the sort of South African-New Zealand combo hybrid that we're used to. No, this is the Australian version. And I'm joined by Jared Berryman, who goes by the name, many different names, uh, or all the different uh, projects you can get into. One thing I did want to ask, has anyone ever said, Oh, Berryman? No. Okay, uh, um, I thought that uh, might have been a long stretch. No, it hasn't happened. Berryman was like the go-to in school, I remember. Like, kids would try to make fun of it, but you can't really do anything with it, because it's already funny. Yeah, I feel like that's the thing. If you've got a, f- a name that's already funny enough, you can't really do too much. Yeah. Like, I got lunch, and I'm like, really? Like, that's I mean, the best you can do with lunch? L- lynch is pretty good. Yeah. Like, it's just a fun last name to have. It is a fun last name to have. Like, what are you going to do with that? Lunch, exactly, nothing. Exactly. You can't yeah. really do much else. Like, I will say, my collaborator in Bonus Worm, his name, name is Sam Heyman, and so every time you see me, like, Sam, hey, man. Exactly, it works out and, really well. Yeah, he hates it. With passion, but I love it with a passion. But I think it's one of those things, but once you get to a certain enough point, you kind of just have to accept that's what people are going to do with your voice, right? Yeah. Or, or with your name. Name, rather, yeah. And let's go. You are number two. Turn up number two. Come here, you bastard. Woo! Woo! Yeah! Woo! Ah, it's still pretty quiet, but what can we do? Uh, so we're here to chat about a whole range of stuff. Yes. You've got several different projects lined up. You've done a bit of producing work. Your uh, little in-studio uh, diaries are another thing that I wanted to chat about. But uh, yes. let's bring it back to the very start. So you and I, for the troglodyte listeners at home, mm. we've known each other in periphery for for quite a while A couple now. years now, I How think. How long ago the first Z-Fest was? I think that was 2016. Maybe 17. So it's about five years now. Yeah. And when I first met you, you were playing in Evacuation Plan, which, correct me if I'm wrong, and the quote in my mind that stuck out goes, it's music that I get really stoned to... Oh, sorry, music that I write when I get really stoned and watch sci-fi films. It was something like that. It was something yeah, like I was really, really into weed back then. And, and, I, and, and I'm sci-fi like... sci-fi film? And still into sci-fi films. Weed have kind of departed from... Uh, anxiety issues so you know gotta look after myself but sci-fi even more so than before Uh, but yeah I would like every night get high and watch like a sci-fi or a horror 
or like a bit of Star Trek. And then wow. the next, yeah, and the next morning I'd wake up with like a storyline in my head. I'm like, okay, this is the next song. And how often would you do that? Like, I know that the evacuation plan had, I think it was like one or two releases from memory. We had two uh, albums, yes. Yeah, and so that's, I remember listening to them and they were like, you know, the classic 10 to 15 minute songs. Yeah, first album especially was like uh, two 20 minute tracks. The songs are admittedly just way too long. <laughs> I'm glad it's nice to hear someone actually admit that their songs are too long. Oh, yeah. Right? People go, no, where I needed to fit all of these parts in, this is exactly how long it needed. Yeah, no, I didn't need to play every single, every single riff four times in a row. I could have probably just skipped a couple of them, honestly. And so that was Evacuation Plan, and I think around that time, or maybe even a little bit later, you went to JMC. I went to yes. JMC as well. I went, did, went there for audio engineering. You went there for music. Yeah, music performance. How did you find, because I know a few guys that went through as well, but how did you find sort of putting a, um, uh, like a, an academic spin on the music that you were writing and playing? Was that something that you that, always wanted to Yeah, it, sort of it fit really towards? well, because I was already into music theory and a very technically-minded guitarist. Even though I'm not typically a technically-minded guy, um, I was really interested in, in being really precise about guitar. Yeah. And even my voice to an extent, a little less so at the time. Um, and so putting that academic spin on it just made sense because I wanted to be writing stuff that had more in common with like Tchaikovsky and Stravinsky than it did with like Metallica, for example. Um, so yeah, just learning more about, about music and theory and, and how it works and different options. You know, I was stuck in the place where every chord progression was really diatonic except for like the flat five. And then I'd be hearing stuff from like early jazz and Motown and exploring that. And then I'd bring music that I like to some of the lecturers and they'd explain what they what's going on and why that works. And so, yeah, no, the whole academic side just made it make more sense to me. Yeah, so were you always sort of approaching music from that technical standpoint and then having that academic spin, it made it easier for you to understand it? Yeah, I wanted to understand as best as I could. I don't like doing something that I don't understand. Like, like if you do something, you need to know the nuts and bolts and how everything works. Yeah, like I love trying new things, but I have to like really digest it and, and let it gestate for, for it to be something that I feel comfortable doing. That's why I still pretty much always play in standard tuning on, on six and seven string guitars is because I don't want to learn a new one. <laughs> I've, it's kind of like a, a short-sighted thing, but I have a similar thing about learning another language, right? I right. don't know English well enough for me to feel comfortable to branch out into something else. And so from what it seems is like you're the same with standard tuning. You need to know each sort of little niche and nugget and little alleyway within that tuning before yeah. you feel comfortable moving on to something else. That's it. And I've spent so much time like exploring it, looking for cool chords and voicings and and ways to approach scales and, and different ways that you can incorporate patterns into scales. That it's like, I don't know, I'm kinda committed at this point. I'm kinda married to it. And to to explore a different tuning, or at least different intervals, because I can tune down a whole step and that's fine, same intervals. Um exploring something like open C or Celtic tuning is just it kind of feels like cheating. <laughs> it's not your natural habit. Yeah, it's nothing wrong with it. I love those tunings. I love open tunings. I think they're great and I'll jam in them sometimes, but I, I can't I can't commit and write a song in that. So it's like you can do all the other tunings, but as soon as you sit in front of like a preamp, a desk, and you've got your door mm. open. If I'm here to write, I'm in standard tuning. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned like getting uh, Stravinsky and trying to write more in that sort of way than say Metallica and obviously mm. 
you know, we don't have anything against Metallica. It's just no, using I love them Metallica. As, as a touch point. Yeah. Was that something that, from sort of my experience with the JMC crowd, they sat you down and was like, hey, this is what you guys know. Let's see how far we can branch out. Did you bring that sort of the far reaches of those branches and the leaves back to what you were writing, or were you sort of trying to marry the two almost immediately? Yeah, no, I, I always tried to um, incorporate everything uh, that I learned about every other style of music into what I was doing, because I've never liked being in a genre. Um, there's nothing wrong with it, and genre writing can be a lot of fun, and every now and then, I some, like, I've been wanting to do a death metal album for a while, because I just, I've never committed to death metal, I and mean, I love death metal, and I'd, I'd love to explore it some more, but I'd, I, I hate there being anything off the table, except for, like, strictly, strictly technical things, so, like, an album I'm working on right now, the only consistent thing I want is, like, electric bass all the way through. I want just sort of a natural-sounding bass guitar on the album with lots of electronic instrumentation. But aside from that, yeah, like, I would learn about Indian Carnatic music and their approach to, to harmony and how it's, it's very droney but very microtonal. Okay, so is it sort of in the same sense as... I'm going to butcher the pronunciation. Uh, Gamelan music. I'm not familiar. So if, I don't know it well enough, but you know Kamasi Washington, right? Yes. Okay. Awesome, so I, awesome player. Fantastic. Yeah. I can't remember the amount of times that I've listened to the Epic. Um, wonderful record. Right. Okay. I've listened to um, Heaven and Hell. I think no, Heaven and Earth is it called? Yes. Another good that one. one. Yeah. I think as well, and this is something we were talking about with the Caretaker. Sometimes mm. it's easier to find those sort of, you know, fifteen minutes to an hour long thing whereas if you go into everywhere at the end of time it's like six hours and i think that mm. ends up being three three and a bit yeah right very much in the same sort of vein very much the same sort of style of playing but it's just condensed down and way easier to yeah yeah those big six hour artsy projects are like that's hard listening it is like that is a challenge for you as a listener to engage with it and I think as well, that's half of the the appeal for me, at least. Oh yeah, like that's that's all the draw. And being like, okay, I'm going to need to commit a long period of time to actually sit down, listen to this, and experience it fully. Yeah, that's always. I mean, anytime I, I get a new album, I sit down, the whole thing start to finish, give it all of my attention, um, just pick up all the details I can, and then obviously repeat listening. Sometimes I will do that twice for an album, even three times. Yeah. The latest between the buried and me, three times I sat down and just did nothing but listen to it. It's awesome. <laughs> so I have a different way of approaching listening to things. Um, and if you're listening in, let us know how you sort of listen to an album. Because the way that I approach it, and especially if I'm reviewing it for Cave Dweller or Four Triple Z, I'll have it on in the background while I'm doing stuff just to get sort of a, a vibe, a feel, and an overall look at the record. And then I'll sit down um, either at my desk while I'm doing some work or if I'm reading, I'll play it and that'll be my primary focus in the background. And I feel that way right. I can pick up a few more things than I would if I was just sitting down, doing nothing, and focusing on the record. Yeah, it's interesting. For me, it's like, especially if it's a new one or one that I've been meaning to get through for a long time, it's like, it's like Christmas, you know? Like, I'm sat down, I'm so excited. Yeah, dude. Christmas, like, I'm like, I'm like jumping in my seat. And like... I think it was the new BT Bam album. Like, there are points where I'm in my chair listening to it and something will happen. They'll, like, do a certain change. And I'm like, whoa! 
That's one of the best feelings in music. You kind of sit in there. It's either that or when they bring the riff back but slower. That's oh. when you're like... <laughs> of course, always, always. That's the best. But yeah, I like that sort of romantic first experience with a record. You know, that like, it's just you and me tonight, baby. <laughs> Nothing else. Nothing else going on. So when you finished up at um, JMC, I... Like I said, I know a few people that went through that course as well. Mm. Uh, it's very intensive. What was sort of your, like, once you finished it, how did you feel on the other side of going through, like, two and a half, three years' worth of study? That was a really weird period of life for me because as I finished there, um, it was, like, a couple weeks later, maybe a month later, we finished the first EVAC Plan album. And so that was like my whole life was was dedicated to that thing was finishing that, and like, and then things just kind of got worse, uh, <laughs> like just in my personal life, like certain people departed from life, and I was feeling just awful. And I looked at the album that I'd made, and I'm like, wow, I hate this. <laughs> and so I don't know. For a while, it was like, okay, I just got to write. I just got to write new material, and it's got to be like the best shit ever. Because I was so over, like, the long technical proggy song thing. You know, I, I've liked the album more now than I did back then, but when I got to the end of that one, I just despised it. And so I was just obsessed with writing new, more interesting material. And so I was especially interested in combining prog metal with, like, pop. That's an interesting combo. Yeah, it's a challenging one. I, I know that I'm not a particularly big fan of the band, but I know... Intervals have bridged that gap really well. Okay, I've not checked them out very much. I've heard some stuff. Like, to the point where I was working on a breakfast radio station in Innisfail, and I was actually able mm. to play an interval song, and it just fit in really well. Obviously, wow. it was a bit heavier and a bit more uh, guitar and drum based than a lot of the other stuff that was playing. Of course, yeah. But you could go from, um, yeah, you could go from, like, a, a, you know, a top 40 pop song into that and then back out into another one. And it didn't feel out of place. Yeah, right. Like, if you had an attuned ear to it, you can kind of go, oh, that's something a bit different. Mm. But for, like, the people that are working in the shops and just have the radio on in the background, I think that's a really good way, or a really good example, rather, of that combining prog elements with a more of a, a pop music flair. Yeah, I never got to that point um, with that blending it never would have fit in with top 40 what i was doing but it was more it was all about having hooks everywhere so i'd have like a main riff in a song it would be technical and maybe have like a time change in it but it would have a really catchy hook you know and then i would have something else different and, and also catchy happen in the verse and i always write lots of different verses like it would never repeat verse the same verse after a chorus and then the chorus would almost fit in like a top 40 pop song most of the time if you, like, rearranged it, maybe strip back, strip back some of the more technical elements, then, like, it's just Kept pretty much... Kept the skeleton on the base. Yeah, and pretty much all I do in, in all my projects is write poppy choruses. I think, from what I can gather, and from a few people that I've spoken to, it is kind of the downfall of a lot of heavy music, is sort of focusing too much on making that awesome riff, making mm. that awesome breakdown but it still needs that hooks for you to go back to it, you know? Yeah, that's the that's thing. Like, you mentioned before that through JMC you'd listen to some stuff in jazz and they mm. always return to the same motif. Like, there could be yeah. like a six-minute xylophone solo and you're still bopping along to it. But when that motif comes back, you're like, ah, 
this, yeah, yeah. this is the hook of what I'm getting That's at. the thing. It's, it's, I mean, Miles Davis, so what? You gotta hit that. Ba-dum, 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 ba-dum. You know, it's, they could take that, they could jam that live and take it on for, for 35 minutes and go to hell and back with it. But they're coming back to that melody, because that's the bit that you know, that your brain likes. So yeah, no, it's, I think hooks are important. I don't think they're necessary. You can write music without them, 100%. You can write music that's just soaking in synthesizers. You know, and that's great. That's fun. And whatever you have a powerful oh, yeah. experience Hello, with. Brian, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. But even like uh, music for airports has like melodies, like short fragments of melodies that you can remember. And don't because they're not that catchy. I like that record, but <laughs> I wouldn't say it's catchy. But it does have that element of repetition. So did you bring that um, focus on pop and the focus on those pop elements to something like the uh, Bonus Worm? Yeah, totally. Record um, and a lot of the Jaffa the Big Man stuff mm. and the new record that you've got coming out a bit later on. So is that something that you've brought forward after going through the evac plan and kind of getting bogged down in the tech stuff and going, you know what, sometimes you just need a bit of fun, like a little bit yeah. of hearted fun in the songs. Well, absolutely, in, in different directions. Because, I mean, now with Jaffa the Big Man, so the album that's coming out next year, it's called Big Man, because uh, of course it is. That's a pop album, basically. Like, it's guitar-y, a lot of it, mm. uh, but also very synthy. It's quite hyperbolic-sounding, I would say. Like, okay. it's fairly aggressive pop. Yeah. Um, think, like... Give us a few touchstones. Like, what can we sort of reference it off? Like, Andrew W.K. is a pretty yep, big influence okay. on it. Ray Thistlethwaite, mm-hmm. like his solo stuff. Yeah. Um, I interviewed Ray. Uh, really? Really nice He's guy. my hero. He's a really nice dude. What was, maybe you can remember this, mm. was it a Brisbane band, but there was like a really fast electro-funk band that he appeared on? Yes, he um, has you know performed with Noah many times. Noah would be the one. They're okay. not a Brisbane band, but they're like a fast electro-funk band. No, you know, the, and I yeah. the, the video of them like recording... In the band. apartment session? Yeah, okay. Yep, right, that's I Noah. Know. Yeah, no, I saw him play with them ages ago. I was up... awesome. Dude, it was amazing, but I was the worst guy there. I was up the front, right in front of the stage, on his side of the stage, screaming out like his songs, like, play Chase the Clouds! <laughs> 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 he walks up, he's like, I've got some fans over here. <laughs> I mean, I think we've all been that guy. I remember being at, oh, it was it like a British India show when I first moved to Brisbane. Yeah, right. And I was just yelling out B cuts. Like, just, <laughs> just like really drunk off some cheap, like four or five dollar wine, just yelling out deep, deep cuts. And you look back and you go, I oh, was that guy at the gig. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's so much fun. Uh, yeah. yeah, getting back to Jaffa the Big Man album, mm. the Big Man album, sort of how do you approach that, or sort of what's your uh, ethos going into those kind of recordings? Um, so the writing sessions for that album yielded about 27 songs and ideas for songs. Ooh, tasty. And I narrowed that down to 10. Uh, the 10 that I could, I could finish, like I finished writing the skeleton and layering it and then looked at it and said, I like this one. There were some that I finished, and then I went, oh, no. <laughs> not, not today, or any day. <laughs> and then there were a lot of, like, riffs and chord progressions and grooves that I could, I could see them working on their own. I'm like, I like this, but I have no fucking idea where the hell it goes. And so it's just so sitting there. So it doesn't there. fit into 
where Jaff is going or... No, like, I, I couldn't... I, I write by listening. Okay. And so I try to hear finished music in my head and then use the instruments and tools around me to bring it into the physical world. Yeah. And then if I get stuck, I listen to what I've done and it usually tells me where to go. Yeah, okay, I can see that. Yeah, so and... you have a finished idea in mind mm. and then you sort of... Well, it sounds like you've done the same thing as well with, like, incorporating classical music, the Indian stuff you were talking about, and jazz. You have sort of, like, a set parameter that you've given yourself. You know what your end goal is going to be. And so you sort of look around and go, okay, this is where I'm working within. This is what I'm going to use for it. How do I get there from that? Yeah, most of the time it's it's like that. I, on really good days, I hear very, very vivid music in my head that like I can hear, okay, the guitar's doing that and it's on like a B diminished thing and then there's a synth up top and there's a choir at back, whatever. Um, although sometimes, and usually more for the pop stuff, just start hammering away on a keyboard and something happens, you know? Sometimes maybe I'll hear something very vaguely in my head and go for it, but sometimes I just pick up one of the instruments in here and see what happens. Do you put like a bottle on the floor, do spin the bottle and be like, you, I'm working <laughs> with you today? I kind of, it's like... It's like being in a, in a like lolly shop. I kind of look around and just whichever instrument looks sexiest to me today, that's the one I pick up. What's uh, what is what's it doing it for you today? Like which one? Uh, I'm really. You probably notice I keep looking over at my bass. <laughs> <you know? laughs> that bass is fantastic, and I would love to be playing it right now. Tell the caveman what bass it is. It's an Ibanez EHB 100, I think, or 1000. Yes. Uh, it's a headless Ibanez. It's like sort of a very shiny sort of teal aqua, aqua teal, teal. Yeah. yeah it's a really bold color it's really sexy nice rosewood fretboard kind of has that uh that work sort of whatever the top bit is you know how work bases always have that really protruding section where you hook your strap up yeah yeah the horn yes yeah thank you yeah this one honestly uh, it's the horn. yeah the horn this one is honestly like a fairly phallic horn i'm not gonna dance around it like it kind of looked like a cock. Yeah, look, I think everyone thinks that when they look at horns that are that... I mean, it even sounds like... Yeah, you know, horn. horn. Yeah, I mean, that's in, what, that episode of Futurama where the uh, Le uh, from Omicron Percy ate, right? He wants Percy to eat, I ate, yeah. Percy I ate, yeah. He wants to eat Fry's dick and he's calling it the human horn. So, yeah. <laughs> that <laughs> said, the guitars... The good one is where... Um, Bender's antenna when he turns into a human. Oh, yeah. Antenna! <laughs> oh, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, straight up. But I mean, look, guitars are just cocks, right? I guess. You look at the part of your body that it, like, rests on and the way it protrudes out, there's no getting around so the phallic banjos, imagery. Then? What would you say banjos are? Uh, banjos, um. God, I mean, the banjo is my favorite instrument by far. I know, I've heard it's... you and, uh,. Our friend Mario, go check yeah. out Bush Poetry as Bush well. Bush Poetry, really fun. fucking rules. Um, I think folk punk's the best way of describing it. I've also yeah, known something Mario like that. for ages, so that's kind mm. of my go-to for it. Mm. Um, so much fun. Would Did you do work with that record? I produced his, um, his first one, Porter's Pub. That's right. Yeah, I wrote all the music for that one. Oh, really? Yeah. Because I remember um, he called me up and he's like, Matt, do you want to hear a poem? And I was like, you know, Mario, yes, yes, I do. And he just read me out Porter's poem and I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that one rules, right? Yeah, I love that one. But yeah, he came in here, uh, recorded all of them in that mic that you're speaking into right now. It's the magic mic. Yeah, dude. <laughs> it's the best one. 
actually not. This one's the best one over here. Wow. But, no, it is your studios. Yeah. You get my choice. But that one, that uh, Road NT one, has I've been through a lot with that mic. Um, several albums been done on that one. Um, I have some fond memories tied to it. This one over here, though, this um, Aston, was it Studio or an Origin? It's one of those two. This one fucking rules. It just cuts through the mix. I like that sort of high, punchy, unnatural sound for vocals, and yeah. this is it. But, uh, yeah, um, back to Porter's Pub. Yeah, Mario came in and recorded it on that mic, and, um, and he said, if you can just, like, write some music for all these poems, that'd be great. And I said, all right, <laughs> we get to it. And so it was mostly done on my... Um, what is it, Roland FA-07 back here, this keyboard, awesome keyboard. Uh, I got it to join my dad's band. He needed a new keyboard player. Nice. I then had to learn keyboards. How did that go for you? Yeah. So by the sounds of it, uh, music is a large part of your family. Just me and my dad, really. Yeah. Yeah, my dad's like a pub musician. Um, he plays in an Eagles tribute band, nice. which I also now play in. Ah, it's fantastic. good fun. But, um, yeah, uh, scoring the poems was lots of fun. I got to explore some different stuff. Uh, there was a fair bit of banjo, which is always great. Any excuse. Yeah, any excuse to pick the thing up is just... I mean, if Steve Martin can start off his almost, you know, how long has he been going for? And he started off mm. with the banjo. Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty good... He also used to play with the Eagles. Well, there you go. It's gone yeah. full circle. How, yeah. Really? Yeah, he used to hang out at the Troubadour with them. Okay. Yeah, that was a, a big deal in the what uh, early 70s. Uh, I forget, there was a singer uh, whose name I forget, but the Eagles were her like backing band. She was quite popular. I oh. just can't remember her name. Well, there we go. Uh, another thing for you, Knuckle Dragons, Steve Martin <laughs> played with the Eagles. If yeah. you go back to pub trivia and that question comes up, what famous comedian played with the Eagles? Well, now you there know. There you go, Steve Martin. Never officially, but like he would, he would join him on stage. But yeah, okay, he's... Maybe that's not an answer to a pub trivia. Yeah, probably not, but cool to know, I guess. Yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's a humble brag, yeah. for sure. He's a very, very good banjo player. He gave uh, Noam Pekelny the uh, Steve Martin Award for Excellence in Bluegrass Banjo Playing a few years ago. And Noam Pekelny is probably the greatest banjo player of all time. So, well-deserved. So, what, Steve Martin has his own banjo playing award? Yeah. I think he's only given it out the one time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, why not, hey? Yeah, I mean, that's a life goal for me, is to get that award. Yeah. Because I want it. I want to be acknowledged by Dad, well, you know? Maybe you can sit there and be like, hey, look, Steve Martin, I play in a, you know, I play yeah. in the Eagles tribute band. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'll say, hey, we got that connection. Exactly. You know, I've been doing He played Ross. in the actual Eagles. So. It's true, yeah. So, near enough. I play banjo in the Eagles tribute band. Well, there you go. Yeah, for one song. Yeah worth it that's my favorite part of the whole night perfect yeah and just run up the front of the stage go wireless and just running around with a banjo and it's funny sometimes the sound guy it changes all the time the sound guy who it is but um they don't even get the banjo up loud enough to where it's audible but people are still like laughing and cackling because there's just some kid like the rest of the band's like guys in their 40s and 50s and i'm like this child just running around with a banjo. <laughs> I would yeah. like to point out, you know, you know, not, is of legal drinking age. Yes, I'm not a literal child, just mentally. Although in saying that, <laughs> that would be fantastic if you were a literal child and you're sitting here and be like, oh, yes, I've, 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 you know, I've done uni, I've been a producer, I play in an Eagles tribute band. I released five albums, they're all terrible. <laughs> 
getting back to Jaffa, one of the things that I really like about that project is the studio skit. I don't think it's better to call them studio diaries because they're not, you know, over half an hour, you know, 15 minutes long. Yeah. They're always, like, quick, punchy, 45 seconds to two minutes worth of stuff. Is that just to keep yourself interested? Or is it sort of a little a little something aside, like, you know, the uh, the Every Time I Die or the A Day to Remember Studio Diaries? Um, it's a lot of things, because most of them I do with my best friend slash creative partner, Adam Matter, uh, who's been my best friend for a long time. I know Aiden. Yeah. I've known him for a while. I, he's probably going to hate me, but I almost always refer to him as the Yu-Gi-Oh guy. <laughs> Why? That's the, the, the first time I met him, yeah. he was talking about Yu-Gi-Oh. Fair enough. That's the only way I can remember him. What year was it? Like 2015 or 16? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I never did it myself, but in school, uh, we'd go to the library and play Yu-Gi-Oh. I would watch. I wasn't cool enough to play Yu-Gi-Oh. No, I, um, <laughs> I just sold a whole bunch of Yu-Gi-Oh cards for like 220 bucks. Oh, I'm nice. very impressed. Yeah, wow. I'm not saying how much I spent on yeah. them. Yeah. I sold them for the, over $200. Yeah. But yeah, no, Aiden um, also went to JMC. He oh, did, really? He did film and TV. Nice. Yeah. Uh, and so we make content together. We actually spend a lot of time just like writing content for Jaffa. We go to an office and like work you know, it's it's like our writer's room. Yeah, yeah. So there's more, a lot more sketches written than there are filmed, and there's a couple music videos written that haven't been filmed. One's getting filmed in a couple of weeks. I'm very, very excited nice. for a song called Do Your Best. It's a very sarcastic, very fun piece it. of music about being terrified of the passage of time. The scariest thing in existence. Is the uh, bathrobe going to be involved in it? Uh, it never comes off. Okay. Actually, no, it does, but the outfit as a whole remains. When I start playing live, which is coming up, starting rehearsals next month, I will keep the bathrobe on for the first two or three songs and then ditch it uh, as soon as I have to pick up a guitar. Yeah. I'm aiming to not play many instruments live. I just want to sing and play some keys. Um, a big problem for me with EVAC plan is that I was tied to a big chunk of wood, which we uh, affectionately refer to as a guitar. Yeah. Seven string, if you're spicy. Um, so basically we just... This podcast is just shitting on guitars. I hate him. <laughs> we, we like this is a pro banjo episode. Yeah, this is a banjo uh, safe space. Fuck guitars. I've only spent 800 billion hours we trying to damn, get good at them. Goddamn cock-looking things. It's yeah. Chunks of wood. Exactly. Yeah, see, another reason why they're dicks. What are they made of? Wood. Wood. Exactly. Yeah. Wow, way to rub it in, guys. Yeah, God. <laughs> Idiots. Full disclosure, I do love guitars. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so you and Aiden do a fair bit of stuff. Yeah, right. So yeah, the sketches. Jaffa. Yeah. The sketches themselves, they're, like I said, they're quick, punchy, mm. like 45 seconds to two minutes, I think, some of the longest Yeah. Ones some of the ones I've done on my own are like uh, keeping myself from going insane, basically, where like, I'm pretty sure I, I wrote one once about not having a sketch idea. Where it's just like, it's like there's two of me and one's like, man, come on, we got to film a sketch, make some content, and the other one's just listing alternative words for butthole. Come <laughs> <laughs> uh, The Moose Excuser. I think that's my favourite. The Moose Excuser. Yeah. Uh, one that I heard, the, the Velvet Donut. Oh, that's good. What else? The, um... No, fuck, they've all uh, escaped me. If you want to go back to some classical Limp Biscuit... Chocolate stuff! 
<laughs> but yeah, that was me like just trying to stay afloat. I think we were in lockdown. And I was trying to write, I was working on a really intense piece of music called Lost. It's like an 18 minute single, I guess, but it's 18 minutes. Man, that's <laughs> but, longer than most EPs, so. Yeah, and it's like, it's four very distinct styles. Yeah. It goes from being really electronic and aggressive to really natural and nice. <laughs> so I was like, I was in a state, basically, and I had to like write something to manifest my own little internal struggle and so i'm like okay well here's here's two me's arguing with each other because <laughs> that's essentially what my writing process is you know like i do the whole i imagine the music and i and i hear it and then it's just like it's like an argument between the me that exists in the form of the lyrics and the me who's who's just me where I'm like, I'm, I'm trying to depict myself in a certain way, and there's a weird, I don't even know how to quantify it, there's a weird war there between who is trying to exist lyrically and who is allowing that person to exist lyrically. So is it a case of you wanting an idealised version of yourself? No, honest. I'm very unidealized in my music. Uh, you'll definitely get that when the, the first Jaffa album drops. Um, I have a tendency to shit on myself. I've even scrapped songs because I read it back and thought, this is just depressing. <laughs> but um, no, I, I, I try to depict myself very honestly, and I try to poke fun at myself a lot. Because in the past, I have taken myself incredibly seriously. Super serious yeah. man. Yeah, and I look back on it and I cringe. It's awful. It's why... Most of like the songwriting I, I did in Evac Plan and what I do for Bonus Worm is just storytelling. It's just removed from myself entirely. Where I just think like, oh man, wouldn't it be cool if like this vampire like killed some dudes and then like turned into a demon and then kill more dudes? Do you find that easy to write lyrics in a storytelling kind of way? I wouldn't say easier. It's different. It presents its own challenge. Does it be more freeing? Like you can get out of your internal conflicts, can kind of quiet themselves to think. I'm not writing this about myself. It'll yeah, I don't have to be honest. Yeah. I can just try and tell a compelling story. Um, but what I've found, and what I did for Bonus Worm, is that those stories are really only compelling when they are, like, allegorical for my life. Yeah, okay. You know, or when I'm using this story about, like, two scientists building a portal and a monster comes through and absorbs them. When I'm using something like that as, as a, a way of discussing excuse me, some sort of, like, emotional issue that's occupying my brain space. So now, uh, they nev they're never even just stories anymore. Now they're always, like, about something. But usually, often enough, I find out what it was actually about when I get to the end. Okay. So it's, you're projecting stuff into a story, mm. and then upon reflection you go, oh, that's what I was talking about. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes, sometimes I do just start spitting out words, and then read it back and there's a very clear meaning there it's like oh yeah today sucks doesn't it <laughs> or sometimes the lyrics are really nice i'm like man been having a good couple weeks Although often when i'm at my best is when i write my most like depraved stuff okay not that i'm super disgusting in my lyrics um, I mean, but, you, you do have a, a Stephen King book over there, so we can't really judge your... Uh, <laughs> He's your, worse your than gravity. me. Yeah, there's a, a book missing from the shelf there called The Troop. I loaned it to a friend recently. It's by Nick Cutter. Everybody, go read that book, The Troop. It is foul. 
it's a bunch of scouts, boy scouts, getting eaten by worms from the inside. It's disgusting. There's a scene where I've seen a passage where a chimpanzee eats itself. That's. I was gonna say that's fantastic, and then I sort of just for like <laughs> think about it. Do you want? Is that how you want to describe that? <laughs> for like the shock value of it, I was like, "That's fantastic! I've never yeah. thought about that before." And then I started mentally putting together the image of a chimpanzee eating itself, and I was kind of like, "It's not much fun, is it?" Oh, that's kind of that's kind of horrible. Yeah. So yeah, go, everybody, go read that book. <laughs> Give Nick Cutter some money. He's awesome. So you'd mentioned bonus worm there, and earlier on we mm. uh, made a joke about Sam. Hey man. Hey, hey man. Hey man. Oh, he's gonna hate this. Oh yeah. Well, you got a shout out on the podcast, mate, so it's okay. Of course. How did that come about? Is it because, from what I can gather, it's one of your first collaborative works since evac plan yeah so what happened with bonus worm when we started writing the album you're living in a nightmare john uh we were still from somewhere no okay (laughs) i I, I looked at the title and thought i should know what that's from it's almost a quote it's an amalgamation of a few quotes from one particular source i feel like i shouldn't say where it's from though why because I'm a cool, niche, hip dude with really unique taste. <laughs> You're trying to write pop songs, <laughs> it's, from a, it's from a Francis Higgins video. Who's Francis Higgins? He is uh, an Irish YouTube content creator. Okay. He is one of the funniest men on the planet. We actually tried to... We reached out to him to try and get him to appear on the album. Uh, he never emailed us back. Understandable. And it's overseas as well, so you can't even follow up with a phone call. Yeah, yeah. But, you I mean, know, it was... Can, but who knows how much that would have cost. Yeah, you. plus we had to find the phone number. Yeah. But yeah, it was a long shot. Maybe when we're a bit more notable, if we become more notable, that is, our music's kind of not super accessible. So talk so, us through bonus one. Yeah, so we were in Evacuation Plan. Sam played keys in Evacuation Plan. Uh, and we had started writing You're Living in a Nightmare, John. That was going to be album three. Uh, and it was already from writing session one took on a very distinct form from the evac plan stuff uh, because the first evac plan album was like four guys in a room writing together uh, which is why the songs are so bloated basically is that we just everyone trying to fit in their own ideas yeah and everyone saying yes to everyone's ideas you know there was if I say yes to their idea they'll say yes to mine exactly idea, right course. it's like oh cool for totally fair diplomatic songwriting Problem is, you know, we would play each riff four times so our drummer could play four different grooves underneath them. And then the songs are 20 minutes. But uh, the second album, because like I said, I wanted to bring in that pop side, I wrote, like, I think the whole thing by myself. And just, like, I wrote in music score. I brought, like, sheet music to rehearsals. And I said, okay, guys, here's the song. Like, through your parts, through your thing to it. But it was very much an album that I wrote. Um, aside from a few things here and there, the chorus of the song Thaumaturge, Sam wrote, about a year and a half before I even touched the song, he just had that chorus, an amazing chord progression buzzing around, awesome feel, and he didn't know what else to do with it, and so when I got around to writing the album, I said, hey, that chorus, can I just, can I just snatch that and just, I'll, don't even worry about it, I'll just do a, some riffs to it. Don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, yep, all yours. Um... And I think there might be one riff somewhere else in the machine that someone who isn't me wrote, I think, maybe. Um, I forget. It's a while ago, and I was still really into weed. 
<laughs> I mean, explains yeah, a lot. if there's liner notes floating around, they'll probably tell you. Yeah, there's lyrics. Um, I'm not sure if there is much else. Oh, there, no, there's some scores, but I wrote all those. Um, and then when we got to You're Living in a Nightmare, John, it was like right on top of lockdown. I invited Sam over to come write with me. I wanted to try something new. Uh, and I don't like collaboration very much. I think it's awesome. I think it's great. I just kind of have a huge ego. And so people, they have ideas. And that knowing and they're not, Yeah, I don't like that. <laughs> and they say no to your ideas sometimes? Sometimes, yeah. This is a great idea. I'm like, shut the fuck up. I know what I'm doing. So yes, uh, it goes without saying my ego is, you know, large. I'm aware of that. I'm aware of my downfall and not particularly liking collaboration. But the first session, like, I had my, my uh, guitar effects set up, going straight into the box, Sam brought his keyboard, and so we would, like, write sections together and, and layer them, write drums as we go. Uh, we wouldn't touch bass till the end of the, pro end of the writing process, but um, we just found that we had so much better chemistry than we had previously realized writing together. Like, it worked really well being in the same room in the band setting, We'd always write pretty complimentary parts, but too often I would say to him, just play the riff, you know, um, where when two of us are already playing the riff, adding a third one, and then the only other instrument is drums, so everyone is just playing the same thing. It just kind of really lacks space and dimension to me, um, which I didn't care about as much back then, I guess. But yeah, we found that writing together that way and just immediately recording everything and, and layering and not giving a shit about how playable it is, you know, or if we can do it live without a backing track, just being totally free, uh, really, really worked for us. And immediately I saw that we were writing like our best stuff, like by far. And then a little way through uh, writing it, the, uh, the band Evac Plan dissolved. And we had talked pre uh, previously because we kind of got a sense maybe things weren't going to last much longer. And we'd like sat down and said, well, whatever happens, we're going to keep going. We're going to finish this album for sure, because this is incredibly exciting to write. Um, but we'll keep doing stuff, whether or not it's a band, whether or not we play live ever. You and me, buddy. Because, <laughs> yeah, we just found we really uh, through writing it found that we were closer as friends than I think we'd previously realized. So it's a shared experience. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was it was a really fun like collaborative thing it was our baby you know where the first album was everyone the first evac plan album was kind of everyone's baby and the second one was like still like pretty collaborative but i really drove the ship this was like this was us this is our our us as two boys making a baby and uh yeah i think the day after evac plan dissolved you know like sam came over we got some like Japanese food, had some beers, watched Lord of the Rings, and picked the name Bonus Worm. And here we are. So you had those songs pretty much already written and waiting in the wings, and then when Eva. A couple of them, dissolved. a couple yeah. of them, yeah. Yeah, I think the last one we wrote was a song called Skyward, which we actually performed once as Evacuation Plan. Um, it was good. We were finally our drummer in that band, Blair Hamilton. We, I would always try to write something that was too hard for him. Uh, incredible drummer, really, really talented player. He could do anything. That song, Skyward, I nearly found his limit. Because it was really blasty. I'd been listening to lots of Flash God Apocalypse 
So I was just throwing blast beats everywhere. So was it the blast beats that did him in? Yeah, yeah, he's not much of a blaster. I mean, he's got, he got a lot better at it, but he's like a more polyrhythmic, like technical, um, intricate groove kind of guy. Not just... <laughs> yeah, like I think when we started the band, I could blast beat maybe even a little better than he could. Um, that's the only thing I had, is that I could blast beat pretty well. And then, yeah, by the end of the van, he was, of course, light years ahead of me. But, um, yeah, I remember Sam once saying during a writing session for that song, quoting, like, paraphrasing the show Peep Show, which we quote a lot in the studio, it's like, put a blast beat in the chorus, it'll freak him out. <laughs> That's one of the many things we quote, like, a whole lot in our writing sessions. It's like that Red Letter Media, Lord of the Rings in the Lighthouse the crappy Robert Patterson movie? Crap, excuse me? Yo, like straight up. What? That movie sucked. No, that movie's fantastic. It, it honestly sounded like, it, it looked like someone watched a David Lynch movie and went, I'm going to do that, but in a crappy ratio, I, and make it black and white. I don't think it bears any similarity to the work of David Lynch. I've also it's a very, it. It's a very linear film. David Lynch is has no structure. I know, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's so good. I love David Lynch. Um, but no, I think The Lighthouse Rules. I think it's a, a very, very well-written film. I think it has a lot to say. I love the look of it, because it's not just black and white. It's a particular kind of muddy, uncomfortable, very deep grey black and white. I think the performances are phenomenal. I think the score is amazing. I have a, um, a customer friend bought me a, a Lighthouse poster that's framed in my room. It's like a custom fan art one. It looks fucking awesome. I fucked up, guys. Yeah. Really <laughs> I can't, you're not wrong for not liking it. <laughs> you know. I, I, I really, really, really love that film. That one struck a chord with me. I don't know what it was, but I don't know whether it was because I'd listened to... I think I may have gone into it with a little bit of bias because I was listening to a few podcasts by one particular musician, Pat Kinlan, who does... Drug Church, Self-Defense Family. Right. Um, and he didn't really like it so much, so I probably went in with a little bit of bias. And I watched it with my girlfriend, and, like, she was super keen on it. Very much, right. you know, that's up her alley. And then she kind of came out of it and went, nah. No? I don't... Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> but I do like the the meme that came out of it, like, the only reason they put it in black and white is because Robert Patterson looked like Mario. <laughs> <laughs> that, right? No, I haven't, okay. but that's that's an interesting point. So there's a there's a either a screen cap that they've actually added color to, or an actual onset photo. Yeah, right. And he's like, the overalls are blue, the sweaters red. Oh, <laughs> and he's wearing the red hat. As well. Oh man, that's funny. But yeah, no, I had a great. I think I saw it in theaters two or three times. Yeah, I, I had a great. That's right up my alley. That's sort of. Just weird hangout movie. Like, I'm, I'm more, mostly a horror guy above yeah, all yeah. other things. And going into it, I had no idea what the film was. I knew it was directed by, uh, written and directed by Robert Eggers, who's one of my favorite new filmmakers. I loved The Witch. I thought that was an amazing film. Uh, and so just knowing that he had something coming out, I was super on board. Uh, I think his next film, uh, The Northman, is also going to be black and white, maybe? And he just got greenlit for a remake of Nosferatu. The spoopy yeah, guy? Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, Zach. I'm sorry, <laughs> I should know vampires. <laughs> yeah, Zach, I um, showed Zach Nosferatu quite recently, the the original uh, 1939 okay. film. No, 1929. Were you first introduced to that from SpongeBob? 
Yes. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nosferatu. <laughs> yeah, that movie's awesome. My um, my boss at the place where I teach guitar told me to watch it. Um, I forget what it's. I think I was reading Dracula at the time. Which, by the way, overrated book. I read it. I didn't think of it much as a horror book, but as like a no. suspense thriller. Fantastic. You know what my primary critique is? What? Too much breakfast. Think about all the breakfast scenes in that book. There's so much fucking breakfast. And every single breakfast scene consists of two things. Everybody's sitting around going, man, that Dracula, what are we gonna do, guys? And, and Van Helsing be like, Mino, you, God, you're so cool. You're the best woman just ever. Wow, wow. <laughs> You, you, holy shit. So my one takeaway was they spent ages chasing this dude through all throughout Europe and then mm. the final scene is open box, stab and heart dies. And I'm like... From a distance as well. I know, I'm sitting there like, maybe I've just been conditioned to like big boss endgame kind of endings, but I went, yo, this sucks. Yeah. Like they just yeah. killed him outright. Yeah, well, it's like almost out of sight it's from i think it's from van helsing's perspective right him and mina are watching from like a cliff like a kilometer away yeah. almost just like through through um binoculars, binoculars. i'm like okay neat you got him i guess God. it looks like you did <laughs> <laughs> i got a collection of um bram stoker stuff and it's got a couple of other things that he's written yeah right and it's very much it's very much along the same line like mm. they don't reveal the big bad sort of like towards the end and then it's over very quickly right You're yeah a big horror guy hp mm. lovecraft thoughts. big fan uh we had a song on the bonus worm album called azathoth uh azathoth being one of the uh eldritch gods in hp lovecraft's mythos uh although that piece uh story-wise more so retells um with a lot of liberties uh retells call of cthulhu okay which i read the night before we started writing it so it's fresh in the mind. Yeah, but the reason it's called Azathoth is that uh, when I was playing Call of Cthulhu with some friends, God, a couple of years ago now, it was a while ago. That's a great um, game. Amazing game, love it. If anyone's into um, tabletop role-playing games, we get it, we get it, you play Dungeons & Dragons, that's fine. That's it's time to game. grow up. Every... <laughs> 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 Joe put it in not-so-flowery words, but look. Just try another system. Yeah. Try Call of Cthulhu, super fun. Mm. Try Mutants and Masterminds, amazing, like, pulpy it, superhero nonsense. If you're into, like, just having fun with the boys, that kind of vibe for RPGs, play some Exalted, because that is the most fun you'll have is in an it, RPG. I've not played it, but isn't it just super OP? Super OP. Whatever you want. Absolutely. I There were points uh, I, when my character would pick up two guys and they would be my weapons for that fight. You know, I'd be surrounded by like eight dudes, and they're like, we've got you surrounded, there's eight of us. And I'm like, I'm like, no, there's six I of you, you and two weapons. <laughs> and just spin around, just throw people at each other. It's so much fun. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, but yeah if, if, if anyone is listening, if you are listening and you're a fan of RPGs, Please play something that isn't D&D. Yeah. This is a cave dweller music public service <laughs> announcement. Play something that's not D&D, please. For your health. For your health, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, we were playing Call of Cthulhu, and my character saw Azathoth. 
and I spent five rounds screaming. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> That's one of my favorite mechanics about Call of Cthulhu is the insanity. Mm. It doesn't really add anything into the actual, like, chunky mystery-solving part of it. No. But... It's super fun for a roleplay mechanic. Yeah, yeah, because there's lots of different ways it can manifest. And in that particular occasion, my GM's like, yeah, you just sh- scream. You just lose your mind. And so every time it gets to my turn, I just go, ah! Ah! <laughs> <laughs> and I think I've read a bit of HP Lovecraft before I played Call of Cthulhu, and my main issue was they don't describe the big bad and that was I the thing love that, that about it see I have spoken to a few people as well who have the exact same opinion Yari mm. who's a member of, um, of Cave Dweller Music mm. he was the guy that interviewed the Reticent oh right awesome spoke about, love the Reticent um, alongside James and Brendan but I was having this conversation with him and that's what he really liked about mm. um, all of the HP Lovecraft writing but the thing that did my head in is I'm reading it and he's going, this is so horrible. It's so horrible, I can't just... You guys, I can't even tell you. Just trust me. My brain is sitting there going, like, maybe it's because I just finished reading June or something like... Great book. You know, yeah, fantastic book. Mm. Very keen for the movie. Quite, yes. Came... Maybe it was the the frame of mind that I was in and I just kind of went... But you're retelling the story, right? You're retelling the story and you're not no, telling that's us how thing. spooky it is. That's the thing. All because you're saying is the spooky you're thing. <laughs> like that's, that's always, it's like creepy land, old thing, spooky stuff. I'm addicted to opium. I've killed myself. There you go. Don't bother reading yes. HP Lovecraft Kids. I've just described his entire writing. Look, you're not incorrect. HP <laughs> Lovecraft, Lovecraft is not known for being a great writer. His writing's very clunky. I personally enjoy his writing style quite a lot. I find it oddly soothing. Okay. Um, but I don't read him all that often because it does get old. Um, like, sometimes it works for a whole story really well. Like, Call of Cthulhu, I think, is great start to finish. The book, not the game, although the game as well is the great. Um, play something that's not dead. Yeah, play something, just grow up. Grow up. Uh, <laughs> 5e bad. 5e bad. Um, but yeah, like, Shadow of Innsmouth is one that I think gets old pretty quick. I mean, it's just it's not a super engaging story. But... The, the reason he doesn't describe it is that what is seen is beyond the comprehension of the human brain. That's the point. It's, it's undescribable. Think like end of 2001, you know? Like, Space Odyssey? Yeah. I haven't seen it. Oh, it's awesome. You check it out. Uh, but like, it's, it's cosmic horror. It's, it's, you see something that your brain cannot understand. You lack the cognitive function to get that thing and it drives you insane and in that moment you entirely realize your complete and utter insignificance in the universe bro i can look at a fucking tree and think the same thing that's the one thing that does my head in and people are like you just don't get it man it's like dude obviously obviously i don't get it you don't need to drill that point home yeah that's fine you don't have to like hp lovecraft like i said he's not known for being a great writer he's known for having really cool ideas they are cool ideas. I'll mm-hmm. give them that. I, although in saying that, I listen to a lot of H.P. Lovecraft stories in audiobook form. Right. And I found that they were way better at mm. um, sort of giving a good vibe and feeling of what the stories are about rather than me sitting down there and reading it myself. Yeah, that's the thing. That first-person per, first perspective uh, really lends itself to being read. 
there's a great one of his called, um, I think it's called Omengard or the Heart of a Country Girl. Mm-hmm. You ever heard of that one? Possibly. Probably not. It's a comedy that he wrote. Fantastic. It is well worth a read. It is terrible. Just awful and so fucking funny. Is it like The Room kind of awful? I don't know if I'd say that. It's just, <clears throat> it's such a bizarre attempt at comedy. Where, like, it's he just tells a story that's just very strange. Yeah. Like, it's just, like, two guys trying to win over a girl, and one of them's the villain. And the only genuinely funny part, like, funny on purpose part, is that at one point, the villain, like, is about to do something good. And the line's like, and then he remembered that he was the villain. And then he kicked a cat. (laughs) (laughs) Like, literally, like, he, he, he remembers he's a villain, and then he finds a cat and kicks it. Just, like, stops just, what he's doing, walks out, yeah, goes exploring. Just to remind the audience, bad guy. Bad guy. <laughs> not a good guy. That one's, yeah, worth a read. It's quite short. Not very good. But speaking of very good and very exciting, you've got a uh, solo album coming out. Yes. Talk us through that. So, yeah, the, that's the Jaffa, the big man one. Big man. I thought it was you were putting out one out under your own name. Oh, I'm working on one. Um, my, yeah. I Sorry, I'm trying to keep track of my projects. I'm working on one under my own name. Yes, I've got a couple out. The last one I did, I did, I made in a day. It was called On the Day. It was fine. Uh, it's just sort of a fun challenge. But uh, the one I'm working on right now, it's called The Cave and All Things Below. It's a sequel to uh, an EP that I released this year called A Life Less Ordinary. Uh, that, is the, that one is the prologue to this fantasy epic that I'm working on. It's going to span, I think, four albums, it's looking like. Um, and yeah, it tells the story of a guy pretty much from the uh, beginning to end of his life. Maybe not end. I'm not sure how it ends yet. Uh, but a, a big chunk of his life, where the first one is uh, his father fighting this dragon in a kingdom. It's a fantasy story, Fantastic. you know? Yeah. Um, and losing that fight, and his, the, his wife sending their child off to Why be somewhere lose? else. Uh, he got burnt alive by that a one? dragon. Yeah. <laughs> hey, man, you know how much damage dragons do. This is 5e. It's very unbalanced. <laughs> yeah, actually, no, I guess really it's more like an old school essentials fight, considering yeah. how poorly it went for him. Mm. But, uh, yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. Just a little, uh, pull back the curtain a little bit. Jared and I actually finished a campaign of old school essentials where we were the only people that actually made it to the end. Yes. Well, Florin was. Yes, I, my character was the only one who didn't die. You Don't. died, you died, you had a character die once. Once. And then our friend Matisse had three characters die. Oh, yeah, I know. Poor Matisse. Yeah. Impressed. Yeah. But her second character was very rude, so oh, no. I'm she not had, upset. She had uh, interdimensional dementia. Yeah. Which is no excuse for rudeness. For racism. Yeah. In ga- game racism. In game racism, to clarify. Not real racism. <laughs> no. In game. That's the beauty of tabletop RPGs, is that you can be a racist. <laughs> <laughs> just 
have that clipped out and, and we'll go from there. Oh, God. But talk us through the, the fantasy epic. Yeah. 5e bad. Yeah, 5e bad. Um, album 2 jumps forward uh, 20 years. At the end of album 1, the, the little baby is being taken off on a boat to live somewhere else, and that ship gets raided by pirates. They take him. They, yeah, they throw him in a cave where he mines for the next 20 years. Mimes or mines, pickaxe, Minecraft, <laughs> and that's where we. That's where this album picks up. As a it's, magical mime. Yeah, him being a mime, he's so good at it, and I'm miming the music as well. The whole album's just silent. <laughs> it comes with sheet music after all magic. Yeah. <laughs> but so that's, so that's the start of album three. Two. Two. Yeah, yeah, it's the one I'm working on now. Uh, I'm half an hour through writing it. Um, it's probably my best work i think it's in terms of cohesion or how do you quantify that uh i think it's my most efficient and creative composition um something that i have a big problem with in my early stuff is a lack of, of efficiency i didn't need to play that riff four times you know um and i had too many ideas a lot in the past now i'm especially in this and in bonus one as well, but really just focusing on taking one or two ideas and just developing them, doing lots of different things with them. Uh, the last piece that I wrote for this album is two ideas, essentially. Maybe two and a half, but like two main themes uh, that I string along. And so far, this album's really, like, really orchestral. Uh, I've got two pieces for it now that I wrote without touching a guitar. Um, it's big for me, having been a guitarist my whole life. But you hate guitars. You love I guitars. Yeah, I hate guitars. They're the worst. <laughs> Banjo's yeah. there is. There's a fair bit of banjo on the album so far. Wonderful. Yeah. Uh, there will be more um, at the end of the story. Um, Setting-wise, we move into a forest, and so banjos are good for that. Yeah. Banjos and flutes are like the ultimate forest vibe for me. I can say that. I definitely mm. feel flutes... Hand flutes, if you're feeling particularly yeah. fairy-esque. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Especially, like, like a tenor banjo is a deeper sound. Um, so that's good for that forest vibe. Or I have, you can see up there, that is a, as far as I'm aware, one-of-a-kind fretless nylon string banjo made by Rocky Creek Instruments. And that thing has the most insanely beautiful tone. And that, when I play it, I feel like I'm in some mystical forest. I feel like I'm on the set of, like, Legend. Like... It's just so incredibly beautiful, and that'll definitely appear near the end of the album. And then album three? Album three. Been working on that, or is that the... No, I haven't touched it yet. I, I have the story. I have, like, my... When I first write out a story that I'm making into music, I do it in, like, green text form. It's just, like, the most efficient Four way. Points, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but it's like, it's written like a green text. I'll say like, oh shit, dot JPEG in my notes for <laughs> laying out a story. Because it just, it, I don't know, it helps me convey like what that's meant to feel like. And I don't know, I write things out very casually. But uh, yeah, album three is going to be like on a boat primarily. Yeah, high seas, very watery vibe. There is a point in the story where the main character is at the bottom of the ocean. I'm really looking forward to writing that because I can I can hear that. I was about that. to say if 
Flutes and banjos have forest vibes. Mm. What instruments are you thinking for deep sea or even like on the ocean? So there's a few different ones. For like the shore, I like a steel string acoustic guitar for the shore. Uh, or the steel shoreline. drums if you're feeling particularly if uh, you're, Mario if it's Yeah, if it's like a real, like if it's popping off, then yeah, steel drums. steel drums. We had some steel drums on the Bonus Worm album in the song Azathoth, very briefly, as a joke. I was about to say, yeah. I can't imagine that uh, really hectic demon, the first thing you want to do is, like, have a beer, strip down your board shorts, and have a... Yeah, that piece is meant to convey insanity. Right. Also, ego. Ego is a big part of that one. But um, there's a lot of different, unexpected, and you might even say objectively poor instrumentation choices, which is sort of the point. There's a, there's a, a part where we have a synth layered with... Um, uh, bird samples. Okay. Like, every time Sam hits a key, it just makes, like, a little tweet sound. Yeah, and it's awesome. <laughs> it's so stupid, but it's it's great. What else? We threw in, uh, dog samples. Nice. <laughs> like, bad MIDI dog samples at one Ruff. point. Yeah, there's, like, there's a blast beat, then it stops for one eighth note, and there's a... <laughs> and it keeps blasting. <laughs> we use a blast beat as a jump scare near the end of that piece. Because um, it's just meant to be off its nut, basically, yeah, that, yeah. that song. That's like the big crazy ending to the record. Um, so you, you went a little bit eager on it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that's a fair comparison. I'm not as insane as that guy. I, didn't you, I can't remember whether this is true or not, but he used like a chicken cluck as an instrument in part of his song. Oh, no, so what he did, this, this is a piece called... Um, oh, you know fuck. Song that I'm yeah, what's it called? It's called like chicken ballet or something um he got a toy piano threw a bunch of like chicken feed on it put a chicken in front of it chicken pecked all the the seeds and hit notes as it did and then he wrote music to that okay. like he wrote drums and stuff to that it's frightening i love it when you hear approaches like that and you just kind of go like, how did you get like the there classic Werner Herzog. But why? <laughs> yeah, like, how did you get there? How did you get to that idea? I don't know. Oh my god. He also, on his uh, last album, recorded a guitar part through a burning amplifier. What? Like, he set the amp on fire. Okay. Put an SM57 in front of it. Did that end up on fire as well? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it melted. And he, that, that was on the album. So you have a feeling that you like your gear too much to do that? Yeah, I, no, I couldn't. <laughs> if I was endorsed, I'd be like, hey, send me an amp, you know. What are you going to do with it? Uh, I'm going to set it on fire. Uh, what am I going to do with it? Man, straight fire, that's what I'm doing with it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, it, it is sort of that ego vibe a bit. I should listen to more ego. It was cool, so, yeah. Was it last? Was it last year or the year before that? that I think record it was. I think it was the year before. I think. I have to check. Yeah, super cool. But um, other ocean instruments, I like the marimba a lot. What's a marimba? I'm not totally sure. It's like a xylophone. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's like a xylophone. I forget the difference. Specifically, I think it's very similar to a xylophone, actually. Wait, it's um, not that... Oh, that's a bellophone. No, no, that one. very similar to... Yeah. I, if it's the instrument that I'm thinking of, it's originating in Africa somewhere, and basically what it is, it looks... 
and is built like a xylophone. Mm. But the way that it's played has this really buzzy, overdriven sound to it. All right. Um, I think it's B L E F O N. It's really cool. Um, mm. Again, it's one of those ones. You know when you just look and see what KEXP has done in the last like month or two. No. Do you know KEXP? I don't. They're a community radio station in I want to say Seattle. Okay. And they just have a really like a whole bunch of really cool um, live bands in. Um, I can't remember the name of the band, um, but yeah, they had this guy in, and it was kind of by the sounds of it a similar thing to a marimba, where it looks like a xylophone. And it kind of sounds like it to an extent. It's played the same way, but just completely different sound that it produces. All right. Very cool. I'll have to look into that one. Yeah, marimba's a more kind of deep, subdued kind of sound. I like it. It feels watery. Uh, a guitar with lots of reverb and delay on a it classic. could be, yeah, quite watery. Um, what else? Would you think of putting a phaser on it as well to sort of have that wave uh, effect? True. That could be fun. Yeah. And I'm trying to not use synthesizers very much in this project because it's fantasy i want it to be more natural yeah and really heavy on the orchestra um so god what orchestral instruments instruments would i use i guess clarinet yeah that's a good kind of like squid dancing around the bottom of the bottom of the ocean kind of vibe uh, especially i love the foreboding tone of a deep bass clarinet and i'm kind of like using oh it. no something bad's gonna happen now yeah yeah, I've been using the bass clarinet lately to double, like, heavy guitar riffs. And, dude, it fucks. It's such a heavy tone. Okay. Yeah. That's an interesting approach. Is it just... Does it just give it more low end and a lot more presence? It's a, it's thicker and has a, a very different sort of aggression. Okay. It's got more body yeah. than an electric guitar does. Uh, but it doesn't get in the way. It kind of fills out all that area that, that the electric guitar doesn't cover. So it's in the like low a, end. you're using it as an in-between between a bass and a guitar. Yeah, yeah. It's just... I don't know, man. It just sounds good. It's just aggressive. It's heavy. That's a really yeah. that's a really fun take. I never would have thought of sliding that into underneath an electric guitar. Yeah, no, it's good. Bass clarinet is a heavy, aggressive instrument. Like, it really can be. So you're going to do an entire record only with bass clarinet, no guitars? How did you know? Just <laughs> yeah. Of course. Yeah. I mean, maybe. I was, uh, there's a lot of like instruments that aren't guitars that I think sub really well for that heavy, gente guitar tone. Bass clarinet's one. Piano, I think, yeah. absolutely. Those low octaves on the bottom end of a piano are chunky. Like that Tigran Hamasayan sound, that's, that's fucked up. That's chunky. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine if Meshuggah was on a piano. And a bass clarinet. <laughs> Somebody somewhere, please. Please play. do that and play. send it to us. Yes, I need to hear that. I don't have time to do it myself. Or I uh, do, but I'm lazy. I know. Well, you don't have time because you've been true. producing. That's the thing. You've been uh, producing Hanoi Traffic and... Yeah, Naki Soul. Yes. Still uh, working on that one. There was another one. Let me check my notes. Georgia Kate was the other person. Yes, yes. We, right, we dropped a let's, single. Let's, uh, let's break it down. Let's go through Hanoi Traffic first. Okay. Producing their record or their EP. Yeah. Uh, first and foremost, how do you feel going from writing, recording, and producing it all yourself to taking that step back and being a sole, like, producer? It's nice. It's, like, less responsibility. 
I don't have to worry about if the song is good so much. At least not with Hanoi Traffic, the way that I work with them. I don't do much in the way of, um, like, influencing how the songs sound. They come in with finished songs. Uh, and when I think something should be changed, if I say, like, mm, I really don't know about that part, that guitar part, that chord voicing, or, or going for that with the bass, whatever, I always voice that. But their songs are pretty fully formed. Um, very different from working with, like, Georgia Kate, where she brings in very simple songs, and I do quite a lot to to blow them up into the, the productions the that they are. pop production kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Rather than sitting back and being, like, a, a Steve Albini kind. Yeah. And it's also, like, uh, different artists fight with you to a different extent. Okay. Um, to where, like... Hanoi are pretty good. Um, it's not the songs they don't fight with, with me very much because usually I don't have a lot to add. I'm like, yep, that sounds good. That sounds just, like a scream song. Yeah. Um, but in the production phase, we tend to disagree. Um, they like that really grungy, really grimy, like garagey sort of sound. And I like really polished productions. I like hearing everything super clearly. Uh, I remember when I would send them the first round of mixes. One mix note they gave me was that the drums sounded too good. And then it comes back to the aesthetic thing. Like, yeah. Like, what was their reference tracks? Um, I forget what specifically, but it was it was much grungier, more distorted uh, drum sounds. And so we found we found a great midpoint. I'm really really happy with what we got in the end. But yeah, I was wanted just that initial phase. Yeah, yeah. And so our next thing I'm doing with them is a full length album, and I'm going to do it very differently. We've been talking about, and this is my preference, but we've been talking about recording uh, bass and drums live with no click track. That's a good vibe. I love that. Yeah. I'm hesitant, but I'm slowly being convinced. Uh, as long as they can nail it. Because if, if that's how we're doing it, then I can't edit that. You know, there's no grid for me to work off. No and there's going to be bleed everywhere, so they got to really nail it, which I think they can if they practice, like, a lot. But, yeah, that would be interesting. I'm not going to double-track guitars for them on the next album. So I've decided. Tracks. Yeah, because the two guitar guitarists have very independent or very complementary parts. Yeah. Uh, and so on the first one, we did double-track all the guitars, and it worked. I liked that sound, but I think album... To, I want to hear each guitar quite compressed, fully occupying each speaker. I want everything to be really jumping so you're out. Hard painting the guitars by the sound. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. That's that's what I want from from the sound. That really aggressive, distorted drums. I'm not sure what we're gonna do with the bass yet, but um, Isaac wanted uh, distortion on all of the screams on the first album, on the first yeah. EP. And uh, I wouldn't have done it myself, but I did quite like the sound. I think it worked really well for his scream style. I think in some cases, when it does that classic thing where you're screaming and it's distorted because it's clipping, yeah, I, I really like that style. That sounds mm. awesome. Putting distortion on top of screams. I liked it. I think it worked really well. Um, I purposefully used like a less good distortion plugin, and that seemed to get the vibe. Um, but that was good. That whole production was a lot of fun. It was all just, just us guys hanging out in the studio here, having fun recording stuff. You know, everyone was very open to each other's ideas and suggestions. Um, 
we were very collaborative on all the tones. You know, like we sat down, took a whole day just to get guitar tones, and that was a lot of fun. And we we pulled tones that we were all exceedingly happy with. But yeah, they were easy to work with. Um, nobody took a frustrating amount of takes to get parts, which is nice. There was one song with one guitar part, a song called There's No Money in Math Rock, that main tapping motif. Yeah. That, that one took a little while because it's tough. But um, no, nah, they were fun. Nathan, the bass player, he came in, we did all the bass in one day. Classic he, bass player. He hadn't written any of it. We wrote it all together. I played a couple parts myself on that one. I wrote a tapping part for, for that same song, There's No Money in Math Rock, because it's a you know tappy song. The working title was Tappy Time. I actually have to stop and stop myself from saying Tappy Time every time I mention the song. <laughs> They're all still the working titles to me. I don't know if that'll ever change. But, um, yeah, that was good fun. That was probably my, probably my favorite day of production was doing the bass. It's great. It's a great vibe. And the other guys that you've been doing a bit of production work for. You said George mm. Kate sort of brings in the skeletons of the songs. Yeah, usually it's like, to it's like pump it up. voice and piano or voice and ukulele. And she doesn't fight with me very much at all. You know, she gives me all the freedom in the world to do whatever I want. So usually... She kind of like drops it off to you in a basket and goes, I trust you. Yeah, <laughs> which is awesome. Because um, I, I get the vibe of the song straight away. Um, I, I can always hear what she's going for. And so we just sit here in the studio. Uh, I produce her in Ableton, where I do Hanoi in Pro Tools. Um, it's just like an intuitive thing. Like, I just... To me, certain things are just either Ableton projects or Pro Tools projects. Okay. I guess if you're doing a lot more sequencing and stuff, Ableton would be the way to go. Yeah, yeah. Anything more synth-heavy, anything where I want electronic drums, Ableton. But, um, yeah, we sit down here and... Uh, we, we listen to the song. Um, usually I've already heard it a couple times before we get into the studio, but uh, we listen again and I say, okay, here's what I'm going for. And I'll say something fairly abstract. Um, but for the single Vampire that we just put out, I said, I'm picturing this song being played by a bunch of Vikings on a cloud. Well, like I'm on a moth kind of Vikings or? Uh, more, more traditional looking Vikings. I'm gonna mark kind of that romanticized He-Man sort of Viking. I don't know, I'm not super well-versed on Viking No, no I'm like, I basically know, like, I watched the first, what, two seasons of Vikings, read Horrible mm. Histories, and that's basically the extent of Vikings. Yeah, I haven't even done that. Uh, but, I don't know, they're cool. <laughs> I like Armin Amath. And uh, George's sister, Sophie, is in the band Valhalor which is sort of a Viking-themed ah, folk metal band. Those okay. guys are really cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. all great people. The last Evac Plan show we played with them. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Well, there you go. It all ties back into Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. It's all connected, right? But, it's uh... Connected, <laughs> dude. dude. Oh, dude. Dude, I feel so connected right now. So connected. Oh, dude. <laughs> but, yeah, I just started going for it. She said, okay, I think I know what you mean. And I just started going for it, started laying down stuff got the the chorus down and then once i had like a decent picture of of that vikings on a cloud she's like oh right yeah vikings on a cloud gotcha um still what that what that song sounds like to me that production i'm very very proud of that one and then i would get her to do a scratch vocal continue working around it um sort of do like a, a pre-mix mix see how it's gonna work and what needs to change and if it's balanced and do I need to double track that? Do I need to change that synth? Whatever. Um, is this drum the right one? 
And then once I had done some work alone on it, get her back and re record the vocals. And that's always, that's fun because it's real pop vocal production. I'll get her to do seven very distinct takes of every line. And then and just layers. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, harmonies was a lot of fun. Because um, I don't think she has a lot of experience harmonizing. Like she's done it course but not in it like the in studio, studio context setting, yeah and i my studio is where vocal harmonies come to die you know we in bonus worm we start really? by I was making gonna i was gonna get us to redo this entire podcast in harmonies but i guess that's not oh no, no that's what i mean is like that's what we do bonus worm the first thing we do on harmonies day on backing vocals day is create 18 uh tracks of of backing of backing vocals and then usually end up making a couple more because we fill them up and we need <laughs> more backing vocals and i'll i'll at least double often uh quad track every line in in a backing vocal part so i end up with like basically you know, an internal choir yeah yeah because i can't afford one <laughs> i mean if you put out if you put out the call on facebook i'm sure you'll have um a few people true but then that's that's the thing that's my problem with collaboration is that i got to get all of them to do exactly the thing that I want, or I could just do it myself in an afternoon. It, it sounds like it's taking more than an afternoon if you're doing all those uh, takes, though. No, it's, it's, it's an afternoon per song, usually. Yeah, okay. Um, sometimes it's a full day if it's, like, a really long song. You know, if I'm doing some 14-minute prog thing and I have 24 layers of backing vocals to get through, yeah, it's probably going to take all day. Um, but those are the days where I get better at singing. You know, at the end of a backing vocal day, I've, like, found a new note I can hit or something. So, so it's rewarding for yourself as well. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But, yeah, so with uh, recording BVs with Georgia, um, I was just... I listened to the lead part, because it's pop, basically. Everything's got to be in service of that lead vocal. And so I would just, like, listen... Listen a couple more times and then start singing harmonies, find the right ones, and then I would uh, play them in on a synthesizer and then have a sing it and have a track it a couple times and keep going till we built the right uh, vocal layers. So, yeah, lots of fun. And then usually copy paste them for the second chorus. I mean, <laughs> um, and the other crew that you do production for? Naki Soul. Yeah, so this is that's been an interesting production. It's still going. We're about halfway through, sort of, depending on how you look at it. Um, because we've gone through and demoed every single song before actually getting started. Done, yeah. yeah. Um, because uh, Annika, it's her project. The rest of the band don't really have anything to do with writing. Uh, they're just around for the live stuff, and they'll record as well. Um, but yeah, she really needs that demo, um, partially so I also need it so I understand the song, um, because producing her, getting her style has been a challenge for me. It's very removed from what I do. I've never been into, like, the emo indie kind of thing. Um, I like it. It's cool. I'm enjoying, uh, working on it. But yeah, it's been a, a long process of really detailing everything before we get to the point of laying it down. Okay, so there's a bit more groundwork with this one than what the normal Yeah, is. yeah, and it's been, it's been a lot of work, I will say, but it has been fun and very collaborative. Um, Annika... favourite kind. Yeah, right? <laughs> no, it's good. Annika fights with me the most, definitely, on parts. Um, 
I'll have an idea for a guitar part, for a lead part, and she'll say no. I'll be like, what do you want? And then she'll like sing me a part, you know, and I'll figure it out. And then I'll be like, can I add this? And, or can I do this arpeggio at the end of it? And usually the, the biggest pushback I get from her is that I do vibrato when I play lead parts and she doesn't like vibrato. <laughs> I mean, fair enough. It's that, like, really clean, jangly... Yeah. ...the, the quote-unquote Midwest emo. Yeah, uh, whatever that is. No vibrato on that. No, yeah. It's all... Very pretty guitar. Yeah, it's all pull-offs and tapping and stuff. Um, there was one point in production where she said, okay, you can do some vibrato here. You can do as much as you want here, because it was like a guitar solo. And I just went ham, man. <laughs> you put all the vibrato from the other songs that were said. Yeah, I was I was building up. It was it was built up inside me. I had to spit it out. So there's just it's just nothing but vibrato that solo. <laughs> but it's been it's been a lot of fun. Um, we'll also fight a lot on like arrangement of certain things or like how to end a song. We had one song where. Annika for the ending wanted I think a bunch of synthesizers playing the vocal parts from the previous section with like one pad doing the chord progression and I said no I think it would be really cool if you acapellaed this section if you did the same thing it's what you're describing but with just voices she's like I don't like that idea I'm like well you should it's awesome and what we ended up doing was both we started laying down some vocal parts and then synth parts, and we ended up with this really nice, really cute synth vocal kind of duet sounding thing, or quartet, I guess. It's like two synths and two vocals just kind of bopping together. And it's better than what either of us would have done by ourselves. And that's kind of my favorite thing about this project is that we, because we have similar, there's a lot of things that we do both like, but there's a lot of things that we don't agree on we always come up with something better than what we would have otherwise. I suppose as well, you kind of have to figure each other's way of doing things into one project. Yeah, yeah. In, in many ways, we're opposites. You know, I love huge wall of sound, hi-fi production. You know, I love everything sounding like fucking amazing and clear and punchy and they're just being like so much of it and so many instruments and the whole sonic spectrum's fucking full i love that stuff annika's more like three instruments and make it work you know make them sound interesting and and I, that's been really interesting to work with for me uh to be forced to strip it back and so again because we're pushing so hard in either direction what we end up with is something really cool it's a really awesome hybrid of both and when is that Naki soul uh record coming out uh when is it scheduled to come out we do not have a date oh, no okay. yeah Keep our eyes out. yeah i'll let you know um it'll be out when it's ready that sort of vibe yeah yeah, yeah. which i mean fair they enough. should be that's when an album should be released it's when it's ready um but yeah i don't think i'll be part of the um the marketing or anything for that i think once production's done i'm gonna dip i'm out <laughs> did my job uh but yeah no it's been it's been a, a very fun record to work on and so you've got the uh jaffa the big man coming out mm. bonus worm is out at the moment yes we're writing album two fantastic we what have... other projects have you got lined up writing album two for bonus worms one of them yeah uh we've got one demo for it it's a half an hour long epic 
retells the story of Frankenstein's monster. Nice. Yeah. I found a copy of that in my bookshelf that I was going to find. Oh, really? Out. Wow. I've got a copy of it in my bookshelf right there. I haven't read it. Yeah. It's awesome. Uh, where I think Dracula's overrated, I think Frankenstein fucking rules. It's underrated. Or is it just rated? I think it's probably just rated. Maybe the book is underrated because most people, when they think Frankenstein, think the films. I haven't seen the films. So yeah. Neither. I've seen Van Helsing. That's the best Dracula movie. That's the best depiction of Dracula, actually. But that's a different conversation. Here <laughs> <laughs> to talk um, about records and Yeah, and currently and Frankenstein. 5e bad. Yeah, 5e bad. Yeah, but no. I, the, a lot of the iconography from Frankenstein in the films isn't present in the book, so maybe the book is underrated. Mm. But yeah, so Bonus Worm Album 2 will be titled We Stole Your Snake, Old Man, and there's nothing you can do about it. Okay, what is that a reference to? I don't know. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. I don't remember how that one happened. I honestly don't. Because you know a lot of those, like, early 2000s math metalcore bands had really long song titles? Yeah, yeah, I remember I always that. try and go through and work out what they're in reference to or if mm. they're just making stuff up on the spot. Yeah, I think a lot of them are just, like, in-jokes. Yeah, like that, that would make sense. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I guess it is is sort of similar to that scene. Um, I remember Periphery, all their early demos had, like, really stupid names like that, and I thought that was a lot of fun. I think ours is more juvenile. You know? Butthole. Add that one to the list of potential album names. Fantastic. Yeah. You heard it here first. Yeah. I keep a list of albums I'm going to make. Does it start out with the name and then you need to build something around that? Yeah, usually it's like that I, I find a name and the name makes music happen in my head. Okay. So that's why... It's very much like how you make music. You've got the end goal in mind mm. and then you need to go fill in the blanks, paint by numbers kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. The title is often that initial spark. That's why um, Azathoth is called Azathoth and not Cthulhu, is that the word Azathoth sparked that song in my head it also just sounds cool it does sound so cool yeah and the uh the track right before it monolith is a reading of azathoth the which is a two-page long story by hp lovecraft nice yeah it's awesome i like that one a lot it's very simple a dude just like doesn't like living in the city and he looks out at the stars every night and then one day just like a vortex opens up and swallows him and he's just on a different planet and it ends I'm gonna read that now. Yeah, it's good. It's a it's a good read. You could listen to it on the bonus one record. I could. Yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> I don't even have to put any effort into reading it. I it's, can just listen. It's to like it. an audio book with a score, read by our good friend Zach. Did Zach read it? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. There he, we did, go. he did a, a little bit of voice work on the album. He did that, and he did a monologue in a song called Sandro, which was inspired by the films of Akira Kurosawa, because I'm super cool. Who is that? Uh, early Japanese filmmaker. He made a lot of films in the 50s and 60s. A lot of classic samurai films. Okay. Have you ever seen any, like, early westerns? Probably. They're all remakes of Akira Kurosawa samurai films. Nice! Yeah. The Magnificent Seven is a very direct remake of Seven Samurai. Nice. Yeah. Seven Samurai is maybe the greatest film of all time. Not my favorite, just That's the right. best. That's a, yeah, so how do you differentiate the best and the greatest? I don't know. Wait, the best and the greatest? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, more like 
what I think is like an amazing film and and so what, like what I like. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. Like Seven Samurai is such a perfectly crafted film. It's paced really well. All the characters are well written and distinct, and it kind of outlined a lot of what would, what would be done in cinema after uh, after it came out. It's a very influential film. Forget who it was like Scorsese or Spielberg or someone like that once said Kurosawa is the Beethoven of filmmaking. You know, he outlines those early principles that are just still present today. Okay. The only... Yeah. so fucking dorky, but the only, like, Japanese movies that I watch is all the fucking Toho Godzilla movies. Oh, because I've been meaning to get into them. They're watching men in rubber suits, like, go... Bah! <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. And if you ever get the chance, I think it's... Uh, Tetsuya... Oh, I can't remember who did it. Uh, I think it's Tetsuya the Iron Man. Right. If you like horror movies, a really mm. good bit of body horror. It's Ooh, I do love body horror. That starts turning into a machine, and he has a drill penis. Holy shit! I, I think it's. I think I watched it on YouTube. I, I gotta see that. It is yeah. Wonderful. Like think. You know how Videodrome has that really sort of shock horror... I've actually not got around to Videodrome yet. <gasps> I know, I know, oh, I know. You'd be all over that! I know, I know. I've seen most of Cronenberg's stuff. I haven't seen that one yet. It's very good. Yeah, I've seen Naked Lunch. That's a fucking weird one. Is that as weird as Crash? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Crash is kind of in its own place. It's five bucks you ever made, that's a... Oh, yeah. <laughs> tell the, tell the Cro-Mangans oh, well, how, that, uh, how that came about. Well, Crash is a film by David Cronenberg about people who are sexually aroused by car crashes. <laughs> it is one of my favorite films I've ever seen. I think it's fucking phenomenal. It's definitely not for everyone. When I first watched it with Aiden, uh, like a year ago, one of the first things we said after watching it is like, that's two hours of people walking out of the theater. Because it's just, it's uncomfortable. It's a very uncomfortable film. There's a lot of sex and none of it's sexy. And some really fucking weird shit happens, man. But anyway, me, me and my buddy Aiden, best friend, creative partner, we were with uh, a couple friends of ours. Um, one of whom was his girlfriend, and we were talking about Crash. This was the night after we'd seen it for the first time. And we're like, guys, holy shit, this movie Crash. And we explained the premise, and they're like, oh, so it's, uh, it's Fast and the Furious. It's not a far leap to it's, make. If you've seen both films, if you've seen a Fast and Furious film and Crash, it's a pretty broad leap, I would say. <laughs> but not having seen it and just... Sex and cars, people automatically go. Yeah. Yeah, it's got yeah. something to do with Vin Diesel. Fair enough, fair Maybe enough. Jason Statham. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, no, they are a far cry from each other. <laughs> and they kept going on about this because it clearly annoyed us that they kept saying it, myself in particular. I got very passionate. And it got to the point where I said, okay, $100. We go watch Crash right now. If you still think it's like Fast and Furious after watching it, I'll pay up. If not, you pay up. And they slowly worked us down to $5. Like, at first, like, yeah, $100. Sure, let's do it. They're like, mm, can make it $50. <laughs> I'm like, why? You're not confident? I'm fucking confident. <laughs> and seeing your confidence, they kind of go, uh, maybe not, eh? Yeah, I was hyper-confident. <laughs> 
But uh, they worked us down to $5 and like, okay, fuck it. And we went back to Aiden's place and we watched Crash. We got his brother to come in and, and watch it with us. And we didn't tell him what the bet was. We're like, hey, man, we just, we just need your opinion. We, just, we need to ask you one question about this film when it's over. And, and that's all. <laughs> and then I think halfway through, he asked what the question was. I think the bet had come up. And we're like, and we explained. And he's like, oh, right, okay. And then the film ends and he goes... Nah, man. <laughs> nah, it's not fucking Fast and Furious. <laughs> and we each made five dollars nice. by watching Crash. What did you spend the five dollars on? I don't know. It may still be in my wallet. I don't use cash very much. Yeah, I was having this trouble the other day. Where I was at the markets and I wanted to buy something, and they're like, "It's cash only." I kind of just went. I know I carry cash sometimes, mm. but it's a rarity. Yeah, yeah. There's like. There's been like twenty five dollars in my wallet for like a year or more, because it's just I don't know in no situation am I like oh hold on let me pay for this with cash, that'll be convenient. I mean the only convenience it has is saving up your change in a little bucket and at the end of the year. It's true. I should get a little piggy bank. Yeah. It, yeah. It, I've got like an old you know those uh, Corinthian biscuits those Italian wafer ones that are like yay long. Oh yeah yeah. Through. Yeah. I got one of them, and that's like my piggy bank. Yeah, right. And, like, again, it's the only reason I'd have cash on me is just yeah. to fill that up. Yeah. And that said, that means you don't have cash on you. It's in the piggy bank. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe I should do one uh, to, to raise funds for an RP1. I want to get a teenage engineering RP1. They're expensive, and they rarely show up in Australia. I think Tarmar Music might have them right now in Melbourne. But uh, if you're not familiar, it's a super cool niche synthesizer. It's like an all-in-one. It's like a door, basically, in a small keyboard. And it looks like a toy. And it does a lot. It's, it's only four tracks, which is interesting. So it's limiting in that regard. But it has really cool stylized keys. Um, it has a built-in mic, so you can sample stuff directly into it. Uh, you can do, like, tape effects in it. You know, pull and stretch things. Uh, there's lots of effects available. There's an effect called the cow. It, the, the screen is really cool, and, and the cow, the effect is just like a picture of a cow with like its stomachs just like bubbling. <laughs> it's really weird. There's a hidden helicopter game in it. There's also a radio in it. What? Yeah, it's the craziest thing. And it's so cute, but so, so powerful. But, but why? Because it's cool. It is cool. <laughs> like, why yeah. isn't a helicopter game and a synth? What? Okay, if you had the ability. Yeah, you know what? I just said that. <laughs> <laughs> and it's hidden as well. Like, you gotta find it. So it's like a mission to get to that. Yeah! Okay. How cool is that? I'm gonna find that thing. <laughs> but yeah, they're, they're getting a little more popular recently. Because um, Teenage Engineering, they're like pocket operators, are pretty, pretty popular little sample things. Um, but uh, producer and YouTuber Andrew Huang paraded around the RP1 a couple of years ago, uh, and he has been ever since. He uses it all the time. And then, like, it was shortly after he did that, I noticed Misha Mansour from Periphery, that one showed up in his studio. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. Really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I remember he even uploaded a demo that he made with it, which ended up being a song on Periphery 4, a song called Crush. So there you go. And I think he had loaded his own samples into it, so that's another you thing you can do. You just want to play the helicopter game. Yeah. <laughs> it looks fun. <laughs> I play, like, 
one video game a year. So that would that would be my quarter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one thing we like to do um, is go through like a whole bunch of really basic questions. Right? Okay. Um, I'm a pretty basic guy. Wow, well, you know, you, you apparently are not. You want to play a helicopter game on a really niche scene. <laughs> I don't think that's very far from it. Uh, first one, Gateway Album. First record that got you into music. The first one where you sort of went, Ah, oh, this is more than stuff that plays on the radio. Um, Anthology by the Ramones. Nice! So, yeah, through disc. That is the reason that I do what I do, that album. I heard it, and I went, Oh, I want to make songs. <laughs> guitars sound cool. Guitars do not sound cool. Guitars Fuck guitars. Suck. You're a banjo <laughs> Banjo, 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 banjo. <laughs> But yeah, that would that would be the one that that really kicked it off. And does it go back to the thing that you were saying with Naki Soul, where they have basically three instruments and go, where the Ramones are like mm. two minutes, go, make a good song. Yeah, yeah. I think the famous quote is that they played they their shows they would play like fifteen songs in fourteen minutes, something like that. <laughs> but yeah, they yeah their their style was for, in the early days very much just like. Just go fast, do it, song, make it happen. Is it over? Good. Yeah, song. cool. And then I think they worked with Phil Spector in their later career. I actually really like some of the material they did with them. Um, it's not really the Ramones anymore at that point. No. Um, it's, you know, lots of synths and extra instrumentation and, and I guess some slightly more intricate hooks. But I still think that a lot of it, a lot of those songs are really great. Fantastic. What are, yeah. the, what are some of the later Phil Spector ones? Uh, my Brain is Hanging Upside Down. Nice. It's the big one. Fantastic song. Love that tune. One of the, the catchiest songs ever. One of the most, like, you can do it songs ever. I think the first time I heard it was uh, in School of Rock. When in School of Rock? That is, uh, it's the montage of Jack Black teaching the kids about rock and roll. Ah, yeah. okay, I'm with you now. Yeah, I think I hadn't listened that far into the album at that time, and I saw the the film. That's another really big deal for me growing up is that movie. That I really like inspired it, but as, as I keep watching it back and think, yo, Jack Black just seems like a straight pedo in this, right? Like, he legit... <laughs> I mean, that's the joke. That's the joke, right? When at the end he's like... Your kids, your I've kids touched have kids. touched me. I'm pretty sure I've touched them. Did you see the face? Yeah, yeah. Oh my god! Yeah. And like as a kid, you're like, huh, oh, what? Okay, that's you're a weird like, joke. Ah, yeah, and as an adult, you're like, ah. Oh. I think as soon as that line clicked for me, I'm like, ah, oh, this movie makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, but you gotta kind of just go along with the innocence of the film. You know, it kind of asks you to suspend your disbelief that this is just an innocent Mate, situation. I watch wrestling. I, the suspension of disbelief. Bruh. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's part of the course for me. Yeah. Wrestling is maybe the most... Like, WWE is, like, maybe the most well-written show on TV. The, the fact that it's been going since uh, the 30s... Yeah. And people still reference stuff that goes from the 30s. That's why, like, 90 years of TV. Yeah, Jesus... But yeah, it's like, it's not good writing. It's no. just the best writing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the Ramones Anthology was what got you into music. If mm. you were going to be on a lineup, if either Jaffa the Big Man or Bonus Worm or 
Um, both. If, yeah. <laughs> if, if you could play two separate sets with yes. both your bands. Oh, and Jared Berryman, and the Jared real me. Yeah. Okay. So if you were able to play a three-set show with, let's say, three other bands, who are going to be uh, joining you on that lineup? Three other bands. I'd like to keep it eclectic. Um, and I, I'd like I'd like it to be ones that the Wiggles, bruh. <laughs> I don't think I don't think yeah, I could. That'd be so much fun. Here's the thing: I don't think I could stand in that shadow. You know, I think I would be embarrassed to go on so before have, or after. They'd have to be the headliner, right? Yeah, there's no way I, otherwise that I would agree to Did do that. Did you see that they were doing an 18s plus? tour oh really i think they either did or they have and mario went to it right because of course yeah, of course he did. would yeah um and he said it was so much fun hell yeah god that would Can be you imagine a, like a room full of people just pissed as fuck going oh yeah that's where i want to be okay so but yeah um, time. okay i think i would i would pick um, three artists that cover three really important for me parts of my so more taste. Of a festival rather than a, like yeah. a festival rather yeah. than a solo show. So, and um, it's also going to be based on who I'd like to be playing with right now. Um, the first one that comes to mind is Carly Rae Jepsen. Oh, someone's I, been, someone knows Anthony Fantano. I, I'm not a big Fantano guy. Yeah, uh, that's that, just always yeah. the name. Everyone like, if it's a serious music man, and like, yeah. like Carly Rae Jepsen. That's fair. Know. Yeah, no. Um, Sam from Bonus Worm told me about her album Emotion so years good. ago, and I didn't get around to it till quite recently. That's so good. Yeah, one of the best albums I've ever heard in my entire I'm life. Definitely obsessed with Charlie XCX for a similar reason. Like, All right. It's such well-written, super fun pop. Music. Yeah. Yeah, Carly Rae Jepsen is like my gold standard of pop music. Uh, just unfortunate that she's not bigger, you know? Like, n none of her stuff has done near as well as I think it deserves to have. Yeah. But I think Which she is kind of, It's an interesting catch-22 when you talk about pop music, being like, this pop artist should be bigger. Mm. It's like, yeah, they're playing sold-out stadiums, though. Yeah, like, she's big, but she's not, like... She's like no like, Swift, she, yeah, she's not like Taylor Swift or Bruno Mars. Bruno deserves to be there. He's an incredibly talented musician. He is. The record um, he did with Anderson Pack. fantastic. I haven't... That's the only thing I've listened to the last two days. Literally, Three days, like, yeah. Up until then, I was like, he just seems like a guy that your mum puts on when she wants to listen to fun music. You know? mm. But that record he did with Anderson Pack, I was like, oh! Like, he actually... Yeah. He, he got them chops, though. Yeah, that is some really like S-tier songwriting on that record. I'm totally in love with it. It's like maybe my favorite that's come out this year. That or Colors 2, Between the Buried and Me. That album's been fucking me up all year. <laughs> but um, yeah. I'm sorry, Carly Rae Jepsen. Carly Jepsen. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't say Devin Townsend. True. He is my favorite artist of all time. Uh, yeah, I got the, the Order of Magnitude Blu-ray sitting there. I uh, got a bunch of CDs in the old CD trove over there, a bunch in the car. CDs? Yeah, man. I'm, a, I'm old school. <laughs> I love them. These, you see those... Like those wax cylinders that you're on. <laughs> <laughs> well, you see under the Yamaha HS7s, the big um, Proc audio speakers down there. Yes. Those are... That's the CD setup. Yeah. And so I took one of the beanbags out, but what I do when I can, when I get the time, is just CD in the player, very loud, sit in the beanbag, knock back a couple of beers, and that's just... That's heaven that's ecstasy man that's yeah heaven it's where i want to be all the time i want to live inside those albums 
and like Devin Townsend, like his last one, Empath, I like fixed my life when I heard that album. I was in like a rough spot. I wasn't treating myself very well. And then I heard him like, fuck man. Started, started eating better, went back to the gym, started like moisturizing. Like to that Serious degree, stuff. yeah. I cleaned. I like cleaned my room and threw out my bong. That's what that album did to me. <laughs> so, out the window. Yeah, I just chucked it. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the neighbors picked it up. <laughs> Fine, it was a game. Yeah, <laughs> no, it was glossy. <laughs> uh, yeah. So yeah, Devin would have to be up there. And then, uh, do I have to pick artists who are alive? No. Okay. Good, because I'm glad it's... you were going to say Gigi Allen. <laughs> that would make it the most interesting show I ever played. <laughs> so, just so, I love that Carly Rae Jepsen, Devin Townsend, possibly the Wiggles, and Gigi Allen. <laughs> God, who would be number three? There's a whole lot of options that I would love to have on there uh, uh fuck man um kind of thinking maybe the deer hunter i wouldn't be the songwriter i am without the deer hunter between the berry to me but i've also got i've already got a heavy prog act on somewhat with devon i do love bt band so much uh dio would be epic that'd be fantastic dio is like the coolest person who's ever lived probably him or Prince, and Prince is another big contender. Prince would be good. Prince I've been listening to since before I was born. And I've been a big fan the whole time. Prince is another one of the reasons that I do this. And he's probably influenced my e ego trip in like doing the albums where I do everything myself. The only thing I'm not doing at the moment, at least on like Jaffa stuff, is mastering, because I hate mastering. Sucks. <laughs> but, like, I look at Prince Records, and on the back it says, you know, produced, written, performed, mixed by master. Prince. He didn't master. I don't know if they even were mastered. Those albums don't sound mastered, do they? It's not much to think about. But, uh, yeah, I kind of, that ego trip inspires me to have my own. <laughs> if you gotta, you know, go for it, then Prince is a good role model. Best, yeah. yeah. God. Um, artist three today, I'm feeling Prince, so I'm going to say Prince. Tomorrow it will be the Deer Hunter, and maybe on a different day it would be Opeth. Actually, on Flesh God Apocalypse would be cool. That would diversify things. That would. I would kill. I would actually kill to see Carly Rae Jepsen and Flesh God Apocalypse on the same bill. I feel like the only place you're going to see that is like. A pitchfork event. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe mm. Coachella. Yeah. Would Flesh God be at Coachella? No, that would be more of a pitchfork. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. Okay, new life goal. Start my own festival. That is, it's, <laughs> it's only like really cute pop acts and like really aggressive death metal acts. <laughs> Custom a wide net. I think it's a good model. That's true. And <laughs> I, I, I would love to see, like, just the crowd mix for that one. Yeah, that'd be awesome. I want to see the metalheads watching, like, Charlie XCX, you know, who's maybe not cute pop, but still. Uh, yeah, I know yeah. what you mean. What is that? 
But when you talk about cute pop, are we talking like PC music cute pop or radio friendly cute pop? Um, I mean, look, Carly's a good standard to wear, especially all the stuff on Emotion is very like, a lot of it's quite innocent and, and endearing and vulnerable. And so I guess that would be a is way to put it. Is that the record with Party for One or was that a more recent No, one? that's... Um, that's got Run Away With Me. Yeah, it's got Run Away With Me and all that girl problems, which might be the greatest song of all time. If not, Run Away With Me. Yeah, true. I go back and forth between those two a lot. They are fantastic songs. Yeah, pretty much every song on that album is one that when it comes on, I say, oh, this is the greatest song of all time. Uh, There are certain songs that do that to me. Last night, Rosanna by Toto came on. I went, oh, oh, greatest song of all time. That's neat. That is a great song. (laughs) Yeah. I love the the build-up. The build-up is so much fun. Like the intro? No, no, No? just like when it's like, Meet you all the way. A good friend of mine was a drummer on a cruise ship for like six months. That would be cool. That song. Mm. And he, he converted me. You know, whenever everyone always thinks Africa as yeah. the main Toto song. I try to get, to get him to think Rosanna. Yeah, he yeah. converted me because, yeah. dude, when I play that, people that have had replaced hips, they've been drinking all day. <laughs> Bam, as soon as Rosanna gets on, oh, that gets the great it's one. It's the Rosanna groove, man. You can't beat that groove. Those ghost notes, you know, and opening with just the drums. That's one of my favorite drum intros ever. Right up there with, like, Rainbow Stargazer, Dream Theater, Honor Thy Father. Like, and it's way less complicated than either of those. It's just a good groove. And just hosting, you're like, oh, damn, those very quiet triplet ghost notes. You're like, you're like all right, fuck, all right. What's going on then, here? Dum, 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 ah, perfect. It's a perfect piece of music, I think. And there's so much going on. You're like, Toto had a whole other trip. Because I, I think I only know the two songs, and like that goes back to me not listening to a lot of stuff. But Rosanna, every time mm-hmm. that comes on, I'm like, this is so good. Yeah. Also, not another perfect song, Give Me the Night by George Benson. Absolutely. So uh, good. Could not agree more. I was at yeah. um, Woolies at Goodner the other day, and that came on, and I'm just sitting there going, fuck yeah. Mm. Fuck yeah. Mm. It's, thing, it's like, I can't even, with most of these songs, I can't even necessarily tell you 100% why, but sometimes I hear a song and I just know that's perfect. That is exactly the song that it's meant to be. I, can't, I guess I kind of subscribe to the Devon Townsend theory that the music already exists, we're just getting it out. Yeah, that makes sense. And so I guess, it's, to me, it's like whoever wrote that song, they got it out. Like, they, they succeeded. That's why the very first Lord record mm. is almost perfect. Yeah, right. It's just, it's so simple. It's so basic. It's like a drum machine synth and her voice, and mm. that's it. And you're just like, holy fuck. Yeah, I never got like, around to it. So Royals should is overplayed as shit. Yeah. Still a fantastic song. Mm. But everything else on that just, again, you kind of listen to it. It's like that Carly Rae Jepsen thing where, the, where it comes on, you're like, Greatest song of all time. <laughs> yeah, right. And it's not even Tenacious D's tribute. True. Well, that wasn't that wasn't the greatest song. <laughs> it was just a tribute. <laughs>